So we continue here in Genesis chapter 2. I'm losing my voice a little bit. I, it, this is the first time I've done Sunday school and preaching on the same day, and I was feeling a little sorry for myself until I realized my dad's been in ministry oh, 40, over 40 years now, and for a majority of that, spoke about six times a week. Um, so I guess <laughs> I'm just a baby. Um, <clears throat> There are some similar themes that will run through the service this morning. We come to Genesis chapter 2. There's a real transition now in the way that the creation story is being told. If you look at a lot of commentaries, a lot of, of thoughtfulness on this um, passage, sometimes they'll use this, this difference between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 as sort of a punch at the historical realities of creation, that God was actually doing it. Because you see it, you have Genesis 1 and then there's almost a, a different sounding story in Genesis 2, the, almost the idea that Moses had two trains of thought, wasn't sure which one to go with, and so he basically just gave two intros. <clears throat> That's not the case. What you have here is when you come, you have sort of this global story of origins, the, this global story of creation, of God creating the heavens and the earth taking place in Genesis 1. Now you make a transition here, uh, this part of Genesis 2, and what we're doing is we're localizing the story. And with that, we're kind of changing, Moses is sort of changing what he's hoping to communicate. So you go from this global story of creation, all the heavens and all the earth, and now we're localizing it to Eden, a garden in the east, and to Adam, a man placed into that garden. And so there's a localization of the story, and you see it kind of in this marker, just if you're interested, in chapter 2, verse 4, you see these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. If you remember, as Pastor Adam read through section Genesis, you see this marker, and every time you see it, it kind of, it, it, it almost should turn for us a, a new sort of theme or a new section of Genesis. It's really more helpful, I think, than the chapter breakups. You'll see it again in Genesis 5.1. These are the generations of Adam, and it moves into that genealogical section. Then Genesis 6.9, these are the generations of Noah. And then we have that story of Noah coming out of the back end of that gener Genesis 10. These are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, if you remember the sons of Noah. And then you come to the end of chapter 11, which will be where we end our series, Genesis 1 through 11, and you have these are the generations of Terah. If you remember, that's the father of Abraham, and so it launches into a whole new section. And so <clears throat> when you see that marker, it kind of marks for us a change in the story. And that's what is taking place here as we're localizing our account to Eden in the creation of man. If you remember from a few months back, we did a series on covenants. And during the, the summer months, we did a few different little series. The one that Adam did was on covenants. And we started with the first covenant, the covenant of works. And that really is sort of the, the foundation, the the, the sort of the plan that's being laid out here in Genesis chapter 2 is this covenant of works. And we're not going to rehearse all of that, but to lay sort of the foundation, if you remember, here's Eden. It's kind of now this, this kingdom, this realm, and where this covenant is to be worked out between God and between Adam. And you have this sort of formula put forward in the covenant of works, obey and live, disobey and die. 
And Adam has given Eden in every opportunity, and we'll look at Eden more specifically next week and, and what that means for Adam, but for, for Adam to succeed. And we said he, he was created not as a neutral person, but he was good with, with a positive morality, with every chance of success within God's covenant structure of works here. But it is a covenant of works in that what we see in Adam in Genesis 2 isn't the glorified state. There is still a realm, uh, there is still an era of probation, if you will, an era of testing. And so you can theoretically guess if, if Adam had passed that, if he would have, how he would have entered into a state of glorification. But Adam is not that yet, but yet he is created in this state of sort of positiveness and, and this covenant of works before God, which we know in Genesis 3 turns upside down. <clears throat> And so we're not going to look so much at the structure of the the covenant of works today, but just look at a few pieces, mainly from just verse 7, that we can take out of this chapter. One more note that I think is really instructive for us, and we'll look at it just for a moment, is the name that Moses uses for God. Through the origin account, he is talked about God with this term, Yahweh, Almighty Creator. And you see that over and over and over again, Genesis 1 all the way through Genesis 2, 3. When you come to Genesis 2, verse 4, a new name is introduced. And it's a a unique name, especially for Moses. And and it is Lord God. So it might not look overly unique. I don't know that it would jump out at you from the pages. You'll see that combination, Lord God, other places in the Pentateuch, even though it's not this same construction. What it is, is Elohim Yahweh put together. And you see it kind of this transition from this almighty creator, this God who created all things, to now this more covenantal structure. And you have Elohim, your your covenant God, entering into relationship. And so there's this more relational aspect. And and this transition is, is amazing. As God creates and then of his own volition, he enters into relationship with that creation where God would obligate himself to his creation and relate to them in that way. And you see that transition taking place. It's interesting. So Moses uses that now through Genesis chapter 2. When you get to Genesis 3, you have the serpent enter into the scene. I won't steal the thunder from there, as we'll say that for Pastor Adam. But you get into Genesis 3, you see Satan comes and he says, what has God said to you, Eve? And he drops off that relational covenantal name and returns kind of just to the almighty creator name as if an attempt to sort of to sever the relational aspect as he tries to deceive Eve and Adam. There's one other place in the Pentateuch that uh, Moses uses his name, and it kind of informs us a little more what's taking place. In Exodus 9, if you remember, Exodus 9, you're right in the middle of the plagues that take place. And God is acting almighty, sovereign, and bringing these, these plagues upon the people of Egypt. And yet he uses this one time in the middle of, of Exodus 9, and it's to address his people that in doing this, God is distinguishing his covenant people from the oppressor. That he is sending these plagues, and in doing so, it is showing his faithfulness to his covenant people. 
And so it's the Lord acting sovereignly, almighty, and at the same time, God acting in his covenant relationship to his people. And that's what we have here, that name. And if you're in Sunday school, we talked about the first statement of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And it is those two things, God the Father Almighty, infinitely powerful, intimately personal. And you see that combined here by the title that Moses gives to God. And that is not insignificant in any way as we go through it. So in verses 4 through 6, you have this sort of global creation recap. God has has planted all all the vegetation and the waters, and everything is there. And there's a sense in which it is very good and yet it now needs to be cultivated. It now needs to be, uh, to be lived in and man- maintained and cultivated. And in walks, well not in walks, God then creates Adam. And let's look at verse 7. We'll read that one more time. The Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Pastor Adam spoke a few weeks ago on the creation of man, the account in Genesis 1 where it speaks of him creating male and female in the image of God. Now in the actual act of creation, as we sort of localize it here to what God is doing, I just want to look at these two elements and observe some things about God and observe some things about us from them. And that is, man was formed from the dust of the ground and God breathed into him the breath of life. <clears throat> it's rather interesting. I'm you. I know I'm like going to the Hebrew a little more. We typically do. Hopefully, you find it interesting, helpful. It's interesting the the term here that God formed man from the dust of the ground. The the word for man is kind of a little bit different word, and like a lot of Hebrew, it, it becomes a bit of an idiom, a play on words. And so, what we have is accurate, but the kind of the capture the idea of it, it would be that God made earthlings from the earth would sort of be the, the way that those two relate. So the idea of the dust of the ground is just the dirt, the dirt of the earth. And you'll see the New Testament, we'll look at some of those play on that all the time, the idea of dust or the idea of clay, that, that dirt of the earth. And so God made earthlings out of the dirt, out of the earth. And from that you have this, this the idea of the very natural, material essence of man. And right off the bat, hopefully you realize that he's wholly different from his creator in that. That as God creates material and then from that material creates man. From the dust of the ground, you see that he is wholly different from his creator, God. And we learn a few things from this. First, two things, I think. Skill and sovereignty. We see God's skill as it pictures him as this sort of master craftsman, this artisan creating, forming, shaping man from the dust of the ground. And you see this majesty of of this craftsman as he does it. Listen to how the New Testament would continue to develop it in Psalm 139 text you're probably somewhat familiar with. It says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. That is the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. We're told over and over again in the Psalms to stop back and consider man and in doing, consider the majesty of God. When you think about how beautiful and intricately, well, some of us more beautiful than others, but intricately woven together, the human body is. You think of the brain and the, the way that it works and, and the signals it's always sending and the heart and the signals it gets from the brain, the way that it, it's functioning and sending blood throughout and, and your senses of, of, of sight and, he, and hearing and touch and feeling and, and your reactive qualities of, of seeing something out of the corner of your mind eye and the the signals that sends to your brain, all of those just amazing things. And you even think of when you injure yourself, you break a bone, you twist an ankle, whatever it might be, cut yourself, and the healing properties of the body. As we look, we're meant to see that didn't just like accidentally happen. God, with a plan, formed it. He is to be praised because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Th- that should move us to praise our God, the care and significance of that. And it moves beyond that, even that he formed us. But as, as Psalms would say in other places, that he also formed our days. That is the time and the space that we exist in are planned and formed and created and shaped for us by God. That, that you exist in this time frame and not 600 years ago, or, or, and that you have the, the relationships and the people and the space that you, where you live, and all of that. It was formed by God. Your, your days, your time, your space, your body, your substance, formed by the master craftsman. And there's beauty, there is purpose, there is joy in that fact. We also see his sovereignty. As you can think, there are a lot of times when it speaks to the sovereignty of God, it returns to this illustration of the craftsman and dust, or maybe potter and clay, is how you would think of it. Listen to Isaiah 29, 16. As Isaiah, you remember we did this several weeks ago in our reading, in our time in the prophets, but he challenges the people and he says, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Romans 9 but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? What will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? He is creator. We are created. He is potter. We are clay. He, he is uncreated and we are natural in our essence. He is sovereign. He has the right and the ability to do whatever he pleases in our lives. 
Thankfully, we know he is our father and he is Elohim in that covenantal way. And so he is working it for better than we can even imagine. And it would do us well to remember that as we kick against God's plan for us on sort of a daily, weekly basis. And you have those thoughts like, man, if the Lord, if he, like he doesn't understand how difficult it is for me right now. He doesn't understand the challenges. He doesn't, he doesn't know what my dream or my plan was. And it feels frustrated by God instead of that submitting to the master potter, to the creator. It should produce a measure of humility in us, shouldn't it? As we begin to feel just overly, uh, have an overly high view of ourselves to remember that we're made of dirt and we're made of dust. Should produce humility. Or as Calvin says, always slightly more forcefully than we're allowed to say it today, you must be excessively stupid if it doesn't produce humility. (laughs) This over-glorified view of of ourselves. And it's a humility that the Lord sees and doesn't despise, but instead moves them with compassion. Listen to Psalm 103. The passage speaking of, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's love for us. He says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it, and it is gone. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to his children's children. If the chief end of man is Adam, a state, as we've said in the confession, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, will do us well to understand who our God is and who we are in relation to him. Potter and clay, creator, created one. And finally, it should tell us something about the humility of Christ as well. Listen to this theologian from the 1600s. He says, we are deservedly regarded as noble on account of our creation. On account of our dirt and clay, we should always conduct ourselves more humbly. Accordingly, we must be mindful of our origin. At the same time, we should also consider how great our dignity, that for our sake God handled and fashions and shapes it with his inspiration so that it constitutes for him a home or a sort of temple that he might dwell in. Neat to think of. It is surely a great thing that the potter's clay became a human being. It is a greater thing after we too have returned to dust. Jehovah condescends to touch it, raising us up and joining us to heavenly things. But greatest of all is this that the eternal Lagos assumes our lump of clay. You see that? That, that, that God would take on this lump of clay would take on flesh. Doesn't bring to mind Philippians 2? God who was, or Jesus who was in the form of God, we see that word again. Equality with God was his to be grasped, it was his right, it was his. And yet he took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. The humility of God to take on 
this created essence, to, to take on that material aspect, to take on manhood. You know, his deity protected by the virgin birth, we understand that, but he takes on this lump of clay for us, and we see the humility of Christ in that. And believe it or not, it's only seven weeks until we celebrate that with the Christmas program. Is that crazy or what? Seven weeks. I don't know why I said that. I just thought of it. But All right, point two is that God breathed into him the breath of life. So we have these things that we learn about ourselves, we learn about God from being formed out of the dust of the ground, and yet now we see that God breathes into him the breath of life. He breathes into him, makes him a living being, makes him an eternal, immortal being. The breath of life that will live forever. Breathed into him eternity, immortal being. Pastor Adam says often, and it's good to remind us, that the question isn't, are you in relationship with God? It's, what kind of relationship are you in? And now you can extend it to what kind of eternal relationship are you in with God? He has breathed into you the breath of life, that joining to the material dust, then this immortal life-giving being. It's, again, in the Hebrew, an interesting word, the breath of life there. There's a typical word used for breath that is used of of man or animals or even like false gods at times or nature breathing. What he uses here is a specific idea of sort of the quality of life, to be living. It's used only of God and of man. And he breathes into us this, this life. Why is this important? I think one legs you walk up, right? It, it, sometimes this image of God becomes like a little, what exists? And for Calvin, for mine, it's, he's, you know, he loves asking about God, but these sort of categories of could he run that fast? Could he carry that? Can he hold his breath for our heart's idea? This immortal life, this idea of of person shares in the image of God. And it's helpful, I think, for kids because then it breaks it down. A a baby is aborted or there there is a stillborn. Uh, That that one still shares in the fully in the image of God. And it helps us to train the idea of he breathed into us the breath of life, the the intimacy of that, that he breathed into the man's into man the breath of life. And God becomes our Sunday school, verse 26, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, see, of, of entering covenant and even receiving, not just being made, but receiving from the Lord. John picks up on this idea. Jesus has risen. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed of Christ. And then the indwelling, he breathes upon him in that sort of regenerative power there, life-giving Savior. We learn about Adam in the past that he, he was created breath breathed in by God. He was created good. He was placed in a place where he could. And we see that from the beginning. That God created him good. You, you hear this often, but your, your body is a temple idea. 
there should be wonderfully made, and we shouldn't be careless. The idea of creational care that we find your balance. The Lord teaches us that too in First Timothy four. Verses 6, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, God, exponentially, you should be putting thought into caring for and training that continues to shape and sustain. That care is given, that you are caring for and training your soul. Able to run down the sidewalk without biting it. Even as the outer man of the outer man, though that's fraught with struggle and difficulty. Future. We do understand the decay of the body and the eternity. If, if you have loved ones who have died, who've gone before you, those who are in the presence of the Lord and yet their body, it, we're told, is still, is still that they are able to engage in that. There's no sense in which I'm right now in the presence of God. There is nothing lacking there. And yet you say that, but there still is, we are still told in Scripture, that body is resurrected. And in even a way, it is created exactly as it should be. That in some sense. And you think what we were created for initially in body and soul. We heard the creation account, and then you kind of come back and start over in chapter 2. We don't just jump over a lot for us as man in covenant relationship to God now, as we come now to experience eternity with the Lord in his presence. Like, what, how, what should we tell people who were uncertain, and even what we saw now with God all men sharing that image of God that that, that grace in their life to pray for God to comfort that He would think about and pray for those people and I think it is right to pray for them as fellow image bearers act that as much as we can. Let's take just a moment, bow our head for Your Word. We thank You for the specifics of how Moses has recorded for us your almighty creation and your covenantal relationship to us through the creation of man. I pray that you'll strengthen us as we continue our time in Genesis.